Ecclesiastes 1.9 states, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. French Enlightenment writer, historian, and philosopher of and critic of Christianity, Voltaire, has been credited with saying, If God created us in his own image, we have more than reciprocated. It's unclear whether he was an atheist or a theist, but he was right about one thing. Man has always sought to usurp the power of God through denial, reinterpretation, misinterpretation, and often complete recreation. Hello, and welcome to another glorious day in God's creation. I'm John Kowalski, and this is Rise Up, a podcast about life's challenges with solutions provided by the Word of God. Man's attempts to replace God started at the very beginning, when the serpent needed only to ask Adam and Eve, did God really say, to convince them to disobey their Creator. These attempts have continued throughout history. The next example comes pretty quickly in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Recent history shows us repeating the process of trying to replace God with our own knowledge and capabilities, keeping the glory of our accomplishments for ourselves. The Age of Enlightenment, which is around the time period of 1680 to 1799, is a, is a great example. The main theme was the rise of biblical criticism. Uh, in an essay by John Woodbridge, he says, the philosophers claimed that the advance of philosophy, which is French for using reason, would promote an enlightened day of happiness, toleration, and progress. How'd that work out? Not so great. What were the tactics of the Enlightenment reformers? Uh, The philosophers often acted as propagandists and social activists and reformers. Again, sounding very familiar, right? Uh, Science was pitted against religion. Philosophers of the time associated scientific advancement with the overthrow of religion and traditional authority in favor of the development of free speech and thought. Uh, Science during the Enlightenment was dominated by scientific societies and academies, which had largely replaced the universities, which were all started by religious organizations. These academies were replacing the universities as centers of scientific research and development. Scientific societies claimed that the university's utility was in the transmission of knowledge, while societies functioned to create knowledge. Hubris, huh? Uh, In our current times, the universities have fought back and now trade as much on ideology as they do on factual information. Uh, Taking history as an example, social justice warriors call American history racist. In reality, history can't be racist. People can be, and they were, and some still are. 
History is the who, what, where, when, why, and how things happened. How they actually happened. As learned people, we can do three things with this information. We can take it out of the history books and classes and pretend it never happened. If we choose this road, which many social justice warriors have clearly chosen, we choose the path Spanish philosopher George Santayana warned against when he said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Secondly, we can live in it, right? We can live in that history as if it was happening now, raging against the past as if we can change one single thing that happened ever. Or we can learn from it and improve today based on its lessons. The outcome of the uh, Enlightenment was that the standard view uh, frequently portrayed the uh, Enlightenment as an age of reason in which religion largely succumbed to the forces of rationalism. We know this isn't true, but that's what they thought would happen. Uh, By the 1970s, however, a fresh research revealed that in various countries, the terms used for enlightenment did not at all bear exactly the same connotations that religion had much more vitality in Europe than previously thought. Um, Some sources of that biblical criticism that was brought up, um, the Socinian doctrine of accommodation, according to which the biblical writers inadvertently accommodated their writings to errors, myths, and misconceptions of their own day and culture, and thus created a fallible text of scripture. There's really no evidence of this, though. Uh, But if you say it enough times, as we're learning in today's day and age, uh, people will believe it. Uh, Number two, Rene Descartes, uh, his emphasis on reason as the essential criterion for determining truth, that truth can only come from human knowledge. Obviously, that can't be possible. Who determined that that's true? If there is no objective moral, I'm sorry, objective truth, uh, then how does even saying anything is true have any truth to it? Uh, The arguments of several Jewish commentators like Ibn Ezra uh, raised questions about the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. So, you know, it was the Bible was being attacked from every quarter. Um, And then finally, the writings of Grotius and Episcopius, who discerned levels of truth in Scripture and scientific and geographical discoveries that seem to raise questions about biblical statements. Now, we'll talk more about science here and what science is supposed to be and what it actually is these days uh, later on. But not everybody agreed. Rousseau criticized the scientists for distancing man from nature and for not operating to make people happier. I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't think it's anyone's responsibility to make people happy. Uh, Certainly not governments, certainly not. It's our own. Uh, We have to make choices in our lives that 
produce joy, not happiness, joy. Happiness is fleeting. I can, you know, sled down a hill and I feel happy in that moment because of chemicals flooding my brain. Um, But moments later, I can be back to thinking about something bad that happened in my life and it's past. True joy comes from serving others. Um, Now, there were changes in religious belief among believers during the course of the Enlightenment. Uh, John Locke, for example, uh, who is very influential in our founding documents, uh, in in America, abandoned the corpus of theological commentary in favor of an unprejudiced examination of the Word of God alone. He determined that the essence of Christianity was a, a belief in Christ, the Redeemer, and recommended avoiding any more detailed debate. Um, so, as Enlightenment philosophers were were seemingly finding what they called errors in the Bible, he was saying, just ignore them and stick to the facts. I don't know that that's a great argument for uh, biblical thinking or biblical theology. Uh, Anthony Collins, one of the English freethinkers, published his essay concerning the use of reason in, in uh, prop- propositions, the evidence whereof depends on human testimony in 1707. It's a hard title to say, uh, in which he rejected the distinction between above reason and contrary to reason, uh, and demanded that revelation should conform to man's natural ideas of God. Again, we're going in the wrong direction. Instead of believing what God who God says he is, we're limiting him to our own natural ideas and thoughts. Even Thomas Jefferson in his Jefferson Bible uh, dropped any passages dealing with miracles, visitations of angels, and the resurrection of Jesus after his death as he tried to extract the practical Christian moral code of the New Testament and eliminate really what amounts to the gospel. So how can Christians respond today to the impact of the Enlightenment? Um, Salter G. Connor wrote, how can Christians respond to the impact of the Enlightenment today? Um, And he came up with three things. One, encourage reading history. We are lazy when it comes to research. Uh, We will read a headline, and if it agrees with our narrative, we'll be posting it all over social media, uh, challenging our friends and neighbors to believe what we believe, even though we didn't even read the article. Um, When it comes to social, political, and religious narratives, we believe what we want to believe, and we cast out anything that disagrees with us. That is not science. That is not study. That is not knowledge. Read history. Understand history. Understand it in context and speak from knowledge. Um, Second, promote a better understanding of science. Science is empirical. It is based on evidence and the evidence can change, develop, and even new evidence can be found. Um, We seem to think that 
science is like a being that says something. It doesn't. Scientists say something. And I'm sorry to break this to you, but every scientist is paid by someone and they're looking for something. Uh, It is in their monetary interest, not their moral interest, not their, their ethical interest, but in their physical interest to prove their theories. Uh, they were given money or resources to prove a theory. And if they don't, then they potentially could lose that funding. Uh, we're, we're not studying science from an inquisitive standpoint anymore. We're studying it from a stubborn standpoint. We're only trying to prove what we already believe. Uh, point out, uh, and third, point out what humans can and can't know. The Enlightenment was based on the idea that all truth could be found through human reason. Clearly, truth must have existed before we did. It had to have. There are clear truths that you cannot deny. They're above our rational thinking. We may now see them and kind of reverse engineer out the truth of them, but there are things that clearly we continue not to understand. Um, The next step in this kind of progression was liberal theology, right? And this kind of started in the 1600s. Um, It's defined, liberal theology is rooted in modern secular theories of knowledge and has moved toward uh, participation in the work of the church as the priority for Christians at the expense of delineating theological belief which has led to the abandonment of many orthodox beliefs in many mainline denominations. Um, And this is, most of this is coming from a book called Liberal Theology by Andrew Hoffecker. Examples of liberal theology kind of started with Polish uh, Rakovian Catechism in 1605, uh, Unitarian beliefs which replaced uh, the traditional doctrine of the Trinity Eventually, deism gained a wider acceptance as a rational substitute for historic Christian belief. The modernizing of Christianity was abetted by new methods of biblical interpretation. Um, The unique redemptive events witnessed by the Bible uh, were reinterpreted as myths and were products of communities religious experience at the time that they were written. So lower criticism evaluated the preservation and transmission of texts and established which texts were most reliable, again, by human standards. Uh, Higher critical methods went further by using secular reason to evaluate authorship, dates, and composition and questioning traditional meanings and interpretations. Um, in the book Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone in 1793, Immanuel Kant transformed Christianity from a redemptive historical religion uh, revealed in the Bible to a deistic moralism, kind of in the same way Jefferson did it. Um, he de 
I'm sorry, that's a tough word. He dehistoricized the fall of man by declaring Adam a moralistic idealization of how all people corrupt their moral dis- dispositions. So Adam didn't actually exist. He's just kind of a type. Um, so we can't accept Adam and Eve or Noah's family as our progenitors because science, yet, we have no such issue with accepting that Genghis Khan's genetic dis- descendants include over 16 million men. Not sure why the study cited uh, recorded only men, but it did, uh, which is about half a percent of the world's population in just under 800 years since his death in 1227. So he could populate a half a percent of the world in in just a few years, and he didn't even live all that long. Um, but we can't believe that in thousands of years uh, that we could have come from a family. Um, being born again, as John 3, 3 states, was not the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, but an act of the human will, which reorients the human disposition toward moral duty. Again, we're replacing God's will with the accomplishments of man. It's just simple pride. Uh, they also said that Jesus's divinity consisted of his being an archetype of the moral good will, not the ontological son of God, except that he said he was the son of God so many times. Uh, a good teacher or a moral man would not make false statements. This brings us back to C.S. Lewis's argument, commonly referred to as the liar, the lunatic, or the Lord from mere Christianity. He says, uh, Lewis says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So Jesus' work, or the last claim, was that Jesus' work was not a substitutionary atonement. Sin, or what he called radical evil, is so personal that it cannot be atoned by someone else, but must be atoned only by the autonomous self. The, the, doctrine, of per, the doctrine of personal works and personal atonement is what, you, what he's claiming here. Um, it's the belief that spawns visions of cosmic scoreboards and karmic balances. Have you ever considered the ripple of ramifications your sin causes in the world? We want to believe that sin is self-contained, but it's not. Theft, lying, violence, sexual sin, murder, all have victims. And the ramifications go far beyond the initial act. You think serving at a soup kitchen every Thanksgiving erases all the harm unleashed in the world by a single sin? No. 
We can never pay the debt incurred by our sins, even on our best day, let alone our entire lives. To believe otherwise is the most tragic of all sins, pride. In the Christian faith in 1821, Schleiermacher systematically explored and then replaced reformed statements of faith with the first postmodern reconstruction. Instead of a historical fall from mankind's beginning, all people possess both God consciousness and God forgetfulness. In his words, quote, the self becomes aware that it does not exist in isolation, but that its identity is subjective, moved by the other, leading the self to the conclusion that the self can only be authentically so by acknowledging its part in something bigger than itself. Self-consciousness therefore fluctuates between being for self, which is freedom, and coexistence with other, which is dependence. First uh, Kings 18.21 clearly ad- addresses this. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. We love to sit on that fence. Jesus' di- divinity was merely in... in uh, Schleiermacher's opinion was merely the strength of his God consciousness. He wasn't God himself. He just understood or saw his God consciousness the way the rest of us can. And redemption consisted of the church mediating Jesus's God consciousness to subsequent generations of believers with the result that God's new creation would be universal in nature not personal. Uh, Schleiermacher saw Jesus as fully human, but distinct from all other human beings in his consciousness of God's presence within him. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break and then we'll move on uh, to the next kind of step in mankind's uh, effort to recreate God in his image, the social gospel. Be right back. All right, I'm back. We started with Eden, Babel, and the Enlightenment, and we're going to move on now to the social gospel, okay? This is uh, from about 1870 to 1920. It's a religious social reform movement prominent in the U.S. I know it sounds like something we're probably dealing with right now, and in many ways we are. It's just changed and taken on a slightly different form. Advocates of the movement at the time interpreted the kingdom of God as requiring social as well as individual salvation. And they sought the betterment of industrialized society through the application of biblical principles of charity and justice, which are in and of themselves good things, right? But it's not above the salvation of the gospel or shouldn't be. Uh, That should be our first goal, um, taking care of others all comes along with it. But um, 
that's not what the goal was here. The social gospel was especially promulgated among liberal Protestant ministers, including men like Washington uh, Gladden and Lyman Abbott, and was shaped by the persuasive works of Charles Monroe Sheldon, uh, who wrote in his steps, What Would Jesus Do in 1896? And Walter Rauschenbusch, who wrote Christianity and the Social Crisis in 1907. Uh, labor reforms, including the abolition of ch child labor, a shorter work week, a living wage, uh, factory re uh, regulation, uh, all constituted the social gospel's most prominent concerns. During the 1930s, many of these ideals were realized through the rise of the organized labor and legislation of the New Deal by then-President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Um, Jack Wellman, in what in an uh, article, What is the Social Gospel? from whatchristianswantanow.com, stated, a North American Protestant Protestantism movement where Christian ethics were to be used to address social problems like social justice, economic inequality, poverty, abortion, alcoholism, divorce, and many other social ills. That, that is good in itself, but it is not the gospel. Um, that seems to be the issue here is that we, uh, the social gospel reformers um, put social problems ahead of the gospel or completely left out the gospel itself uh, and did good in the world. That's great. Um, but is it enough, right? Elise Daniel from the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics wrote an article called Three Fallacies of the Social Gospel. Um, the first one was man is not so bad and God is not so mad. Uh, in his book, The Kingdom of God in America, H. Richard Niebuhr criticized the liberal social gospel, describing its message as a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So it really denies everything about the actual gospel. Um, this theology of the goodness of man, the benign nature of God, and the removal of the redemption of Christ is clearly wrong on every count, right? Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. John 3.6 states that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit first corinthians 15 12 through 14 says now if christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can you some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead but if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even christ has been raised and if christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Number two, 
that Elise Daniel uh, stated was that cultural restoration is the gospel. Um, that's the second fallacy of the social gospel. The social gospel adherents seem to believe that the gospel was centered on a, on cultural involvement. If people transformed culture, only then would Christ be revealed. But this understanding of the gospel is too narrow in Daniel's words. Um, I'm a scholar in the sense that I study and I read and I learn about God the Father, Christ the Son, and King, and the Holy Spirit. And all those impacted by them as evidenced by God's Word. I am not a theological expert, but I know how to research evidence to prove or disprove a point. We live in a society in which people find a single source, a line of text, or even a quote that agrees with them, and they're convinced. This is not research. It is simply a lie you tell yourself to justify your horrific behavior. Read the whole story in context. Study the meanings of words and the historical significance of those words. It is not difficult. You just have to be looking for the truth, not justification for your truth. Your truth is a lie only you believe. This took about a minute of research and could not be any easier to follow. To misrepresent the intent of Jesus is a choice that will lead to destruction as outlined in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You say you want the truth. You can handle the truth. Well, here it is in three easy steps. Step one, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Okay? So the first thing we do is we become a new creation. Not society, not culture. We change. Step two, Luke 17, 21. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The change, when we become a new creation, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God has just grown. You want to change culture? You change you. And then the next person, and the next person, and the next person. That's how culture changes. Look at our society. Look at America over the years since its founding. How much it has changed from the beliefs that founded it in the first place. It didn't change because culture changed. Culture changed because people did. And then the third step, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for its own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see it? Step one, 
be a new creation. Step two, join the kingdom of God. Step three, grow the kingdom of God. Uh, and then uh, her third fallacy of the social gospel was that social salvation is superior to individual salvation. She says, and I quote, conservative theologians saw redemption as a matter strictly between each individual and God. But Discover the Networks says progressives in the social gospel movement held that redemption could only be achieved collectively by means of a unified social and political activism. You can't even get two people to agree on what color the sky is and you wanna change whole cultures at once. As always, progressive socialist and liberal theology fail to understand basic human nature, or maybe they do understand it and, and are just failing to acknowledge it out of pride and ego. Believing that everyone is inherently good will simple, and will simply do what the masses demand is naive. It disregards historical evidence and completely ignores biblical truth. Humanity is inherently sinful. We are redeemed through the salvific work of Jesus on the cross. The only way to change culture is by changing enough individuals. The ultimate goal of the gospel is to populate the kingdom of God. Jesus knew that this would be done one person at a time. Why else would he have had the conversations with Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the adulterous woman, or any of the disciples for that matter? He created disciples who created disciples who eventually created us. What are we doing with the power of the gospel? That brings us uh, to more recent uh, structures that man created to recreate God in his image. Uh, And some of these I've talked about recently, so I'm just going to touch on them. Uh, Cultural Christianity, for example, the Urban Dictionary, a secular source, um, calls cultural Christianity, individuals bound by their desire not to follow Christ, but to impress man, right? The first type, they they break it down into two types. The first type is self-righteous. They believe that just because they grew up in the church or that their grandparents are Catholic, they're automatically Christian and therefore saved. They're wrong. Second, is the opposite of the self-righteous. They believe that they can't be as good as others or choose not to be good and then just sin for the fun of it. You know, that's the YOLO generation, right? You only live once, uh, so do whatever you want. A cultural Christian cares what you think about him. A Christian cares what you think of Christ. Where a Christian hates his sin, a cultural Christian is quite fine with it. Next is Christian nationalism. Um, Same Urban Dictionary defines Christian nationalism uh, as uh, identifying the nation with God's will and the action in the world. Uh, It conflates national and Christian identity. 
uh, and identifies service of the nation with service to God. Um, this was written by Dr. David W. Scott, who's a Methodist historical researcher and director of mission theology at uh, at the General of Board of Global Ministries of the United Methodist Church. Um, and then we come to progressive Christianity. Uh, in an article called, What is Progressive Christianity? I, which I got from the Bethel uh, Church website uh, from their Beaverton, organiz- um, Beaverton uh, Oregon Church. They say, and I quote this directly from their website, we aren't fundamentalists. We don't believe the Bible is inerrant or infallible word of God. We don't agree that creationism should replace the science of evolution in public schools. We don't believe that God hates gays. We don't believe that people of other faiths are going to hell unless they convert to Christianity. We don't deny the right of women to choose what happens to their bodies. Um, they say first, uh, their goals are to love God, love their neighbor and love ourselves. Uh, two Christianity is the truth for us, but it is not the only truth. Number three, care of the earth and its ecosystems is an expression of Christian faith and stewardship. And four, further love of neighbor includes affirmation of the LGBTQ community, immigrants, people of other faith traditions, and even those who are enemies. I'm, I'm shocked. I mean, Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, he quite often told people who he helped to sin no more. So uh, while I don't disagree with everything they say, right? We we are to love God and love our neighbor. We know that. But ourselves? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I love myself as that I'm in the image of God, but I need to think less about myself, not more. Um, as far as Christianity not being the only truth, Jesus contradicted that right off the bat. Um, care of the earth and its ecosystems? Of course, we are stewards of the earth. Um, I don't disagree with that, but destroying the lives of people in the name of you know, stewardship of the earth, climate change, or whatever you want to call it, is just simply crazy. And then finally, worship, prayer, music, the study of the Bible, and other literature. I underlined and other literature because I'm not really sure what else fits in the category with the first bunch of stuff. Uh, feeds the mind, heart, and spirit. And I do read a lot of other literature, but they're not on the same level as worship, prayer, and the study of the Bible. Um, do you notice anything glaringly missing in those five things? Uh, it's all social activism and no gospel. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus emphasized in his ministry. All right, I'm going to take one more quick break and then I'm going to finish up uh, with some final thoughts uh, and one more uh, more current uh, 
avenue that Christians and non-Christians alike are uh, taking to eliminate the need for God or to recreate him as us. I'll be right back. All right, I'm back. And uh, in the last segment, we talked about the social gospel and other byproducts of the social gospel, like cultural Christianity, Christian nationalism, and progressive Christianity, and how they seek to leave the gospel behind in favor of earthly and temporal issues that, while I agree, are important issues, they are not more important than the eternal issue of our souls. And Jesus thought thought so too. Uh, He said so, right? Um, So now we're going to talk about the current um, fad. Let's call it a fad because these things never last. Uh, And it's called evangelical deconstructionism. Um, It has kind of a five-point progression, which if you want more detail on it, please go and listen to the uh, most recent Just Thinking podcast. Uh, Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker do a great job of delving into evangelical deconstructionism, but I pulled out five, uh, a five-point progression um, that explains evangelical deconstruction, deconstructionism. Uh, first, It embraces and posits the Derridian idea that the church is a socially constructed system, not a divinely ordained institution that originated in the mind of God. Uh, And Derridian comes from Jacques Derrida. Uh, And please feel free to go and research him. Um, I'm I'm not going to delve into him here. Um, but a lot of these thought processes, liberal theologies, um, critical theory, all comes from his work. Um, he's, you know, quite an interesting character. Um, so please feel free to research him on your own, but that's where it comes from. Uh, number two, the second step in the progression is that we assume that this socially constructed system is designed to be exclusive of certain intersectional identities, traditions, and behaviors, right? You follow me still? So first we're, we're embracing the idea that the church is just a socially constructed system. Second, we're assuming that the that this socially constructed system is not inclusive of everybody, that people are included based on intersectional factors, wealth, skin color, race, gender even, okay? So number three, the third step in this progression is to then identify subjective points or cracks in that socially constructed system that have failed and in the estimation of the deconstructionists need to be fixed or reconstructed. Okay, so for example, if the church is socially constructed and it's not inclusive, right? So you have, let's say, a church whose 
uh, congregation is predominantly white, okay? Because maybe it's in an area that's predominantly white. They're assuming that black people aren't allowed to be there or aren't encouraged to be there. So now they've found a crack, even though it's not necessarily about that, that black people are welcome, Hispanic people are welcome, Asian people are welcome. They just choose not to go there uh, for whatever reason. Maybe they don't live nearby, whatever the reason might be, but we're going to assume that they're not going there because they are not included or not allowed to or not wanted, okay? And this is only the deconstructionist belief. You can ask anybody at the church and you can ask anybody who doesn't go there and they could all say that, oh yeah, everybody's welcome or I don't go there because there's a church closer to my house, uh, not because of the color of my skin, but that doesn't matter to the deconstructionist, only their truth matters. Okay, so now we get to step four in the five-point progression. Uh, Apply a hermeneutic of suspicion to that socially constructed system so that anyone who is remotely associated or connected with that system is by default deemed untrustworthy. Okay, so now we have people who say everybody's welcome at the church, but you know what? We can't trust you because you're white. So whatever you say is probably just to protect yourself in your pastor and your church Um, and the black people who say i don't live nearby there i i choose not to go there not because i'm not allowed to go there or not welcome there but because i have a church closer to my home Um, we can't trust you either because you wouldn't come out and admit that you were being kept away from there because you fear repercussion so nobody can be trusted nobody's word is trustworthy except the person identifying the issue that nobody else will admit exists right and then finally number five reconstruct that socially constructed system in this case the church into an image and likeness of the culture with a culturally acceptable theology soteriology anthropology homardiology and eschatology so what you do now is you blow up the church and you force you know racially diverse rebuilding right whether people want to be there or not uh you're not accepting that you're just forcing change, which results in a couple of different things. It it can result in almost no change at all, which will eventually destroy that church. Uh, It can result in unwanted change um, on the part of the people who are included as well. Um, Imagine being forced to be pulled out of your own church to go to a different church because somebody who doesn't even go to that church says that they're all racist. Do you want to go there? Do you want anything to do with that nonsense? Uh, Let me define a couple of terms uh, that I just used. Theology is the study of the nature of God and religious belief. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Uh, Anthropology, obviously, is the study of human societies and cultures and their development. Hamartiology is the doctrine of sin. And eschatology is the part of theology concerned with death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul and of humankind. So, the end. 
of the story. So what's the bottom line in all of this? Um, Jesus said, as I stated earlier in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, uh, but the one who does the will of the of my father who is in heaven. Those are the people who will go to heaven. And on that day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many mighty works? But Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The fall of man began with a decision made out of envy, right? Adam and Eve craved being equals with God, even though they didn't know it until the serpent brought it to their attention. They thought it was simply about the knowledge, right? The serpent told them, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that was in Genesis 3, 5. The serpent was right that because of that act, Adam and Eve and through them us, we know good and evil now. But what he failed to tell Adam and Eve and what we have to live with is that we would be so consistently drawn to the evil, right? To the sin, to the, the bad side of things, um, that it would become uh, uh, undeniable fact in our lives that can only be tempered by our relationship with God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Babel was about getting to heaven without God, right? In Genesis 11:4, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, right? Let us make a name for ourselves. That's what it was all about. The enlightenment again asserted that man no longer needed God, that man could achieve anything with advanced thought and science right? This was the beginning of the trust the science movement, right? You, you may have thought it all started with COVID. It didn't. Um, the problem with trusting the science, uh, in air quotes, is that science is supposed to, supposed to be empirical. Remember I mentioned that earlier. The way it's supposed to work is a scientist proposes a theory then they seek evidence to prove, disprove, or alter the initial theory, right? Until you get to a point where the theory is proven or disproven, right? Um, beginning with scientists of the Enlightenment, though, they proposed theories, then simply sought evidence to prove that theory, ignoring any other evidence to the contrary. That continues today, right? We say stupid things like, you know, putting on masks and masking our children, and that's supposed to have some effect on, on, uh, on a virus that can simply escape through the fibers of any mask that's been created. Um, but we say follow the science. Well, the the actual scientific studies are largely ignored uh, and the political propaganda and narratives are all anybody cares about on either side of the argument. 
Um, next was liberal theology, right? It was and is a nominal believer's attempt to hedge their bets, right? Instead of denying God outright, we don't want to do that just in case, uh, the leaders of the liberal theology movements corrupted his message with their feelings and personal issues, forgetting entirely the true goal of the gospel, right? Proponents say things like, my God would never, or Jesus would do this. If there is a more clear example of prophesying falsely in his name, I can't think of it. Next was the social gospel, right? Uh, the social gospel took liberal theology and ran with it, right? Putting temporal social issues ahead of eternal issues. Jesus refuted this clearly in Mark 8, 36 to 38, when he says, For what does it profit, I'm sorry, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes to the in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I think that's pretty clear and concise, right? Jesus didn't really mince words a lot. Yeah, I know he did a little bit in the um, in the stories that he told in the parables. Um, but here and in certain things, he did not mince words. Cultural Christianity, Christian, Christian nationalism, and evangelist, I'm sorry, I'm really having a hard time saying some of these word combinations today. Uh, cultural Christianity, Christian nationalism, and evangelical deconstructionism are simply the next step in mankind's effort to recreate God in its own image, in his own image, man's own image. If we peel away everything about God that causes discomfort in our lives, we are left with the only God our pride can tolerate, self. And that's what this is all about. That's what all of these movements have been about since the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, to yesterday, when I read an article about a church who is fasting from whiteness in Chicago uh, for Lent. Um, it's unbelievable the, the depths of depravity that we will go to and claim that it's in Jesus's name. Uh, I, my only confidence, my only hope in all of this is that I know that Jesus is God. And I know that God is not fooled by any of this. So please do what the New Testament, what Jesus himself told us to do. Hold these prophets up against the truth of the Bible. And when they stray away from biblical truth, know them to be the false prophets that they are. Um, I will include all of the references uh, for um, the people and books and works that I quoted in this podcast in the show notes for this uh, podcast. I will be praying for all of you 
Um, it is a very confusing world that we are living in right now. Uh, but we have the answers. We just have to stop letting false prophets and the words of, of men who have other goals in mind other than the preaching of the gospel uh, sway us away from what we know to be true. I'll be praying for you. I hope you'll be praying for me. Until next time, rise up. Thank you.